0: and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Micah Utrecht. I am the deputy editor of Jacobin Magazine. I want to welcome you to this conversation on uh, debt and resistance, uh, a topic that is uh, certainly a courant uh, and is something that is uh, much in discussion around. Certainly uh, of interest to me as a holder of $30,000 in student debt myself, uh, which is probably true of many of the people who are tuned into this stream right now. Uh, so first of all, uh, thank you to Haymarket Books, uh, who has organized this uh, stream. Uh, Haymarket has uh, recently published a a very timely book on this uh, exact topic uh, called Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition. And um, I will go as far as saying that if you like what you hear. During this conversation, now you think it's interesting, or even if you don't find it very interesting, you should buy the book from Haymarket. Uh, Can't pay, won't pay. And uh, as part of this conversation, uh, we're going to be, uh, we are joined here by uh, two people. One uh, is uh, Hannah, who is the co-founder of the Debt Collective and the co-author of "Can't Pay, Won't Pay: The Case for Economic Disobedience and Debt Abolition." She teaches global studies and anthropology at UCLA. And we're also joined by David Adler, who is a political economist and general coordinator of the Progressive International. He's also the author of a review of this book called Our Debtors, the New Workers of the World in Jacobin. So thank you uh, for the two of you uh, for uh, joining us for this conversation. Uh, So let's start with you, Hannah. So just tell us a little bit first about the situation that debtors find ourselves in today? How did we get to this point where where we're currently at? And how do we get out of it? How does the debt collective and uh, the arguments that you all advance and can't pay, won't pay uh, fit into that plan?
2: Yeah, thanks, Micah, and thanks so much. Um, hey Market, Jacobin, David, all of you for being here. And I, because we should all introduce ourselves with our debt burdens so we can get over it, right? We're at <laughs> about 76000 just in student debt alone, right? Regardless of those outstanding medical bills, right? The outstanding utility bills, et cetera. So, how did we get here? You know, the common story to talk about how we got to these extraordinary amounts of household debt, even before the coronavirus pandemic, right? Even before the coronavirus pandemic, we were at extraordinary amounts. The common story is to start in the 1980s with Reagan and Thatcher. And I'm very happy to do that. And I'm going to do it in a minute. But one of the things that we do in the book, there's, I think it's like the second chapter or the third chapter, it's called, um, you know, something about debt from Haiti to the household. And if we look at the debt situation we're in now, right, that Micah is asking about, and if we look at who holds debt disproportionately, and we see this radical breakdown, of course, along class lines, but also along racial lines, which is to say that among the working poor, among the middle class, Black women hold the debt disproportionately across all types. Latinx families hold the debt disproportionately. Indigenous families hold the debt disproportionately. We can't start that story in the 1980s. So we have to start that story with how capitalism itself starts in the United States. And don't worry, I'm not going to go into a long history lecture here. But we have to start that story with settler colonialism. And we have to start that story with enslavement. Why do we have to do that? Because property and who can own property and for whom property can become capital and get passed down intergenerationally. We see the effects of that. We live with the effects of that all around us today, right? So of course there are poor white people for whom property can never become capital. Those people hold a ton of debt as well today. But when we look at the disproportionate numbers today, we have to understand the way in which whiteness historically has become kind of an annuity stream and intergenerational wealth is more likely to transfer among white families than it is among black uh, or BIPOC families. right? So then let's get to the eighties, understanding that longer history of racial capitalism. Then if we come to the eighties, what do we see? We see the intentional um, making illegal, right? Or like the, the slow but vicious onslaught against organized labor, of course. So we see stagnating wages. We see a very successful movement from the right of tax revolts. And so you have tax withdrawal And then, so you have stagnating wages, you have tax withdrawal, and you then have extraordinarily escalating costs of what? Higher education, medical care, housing, even your own incarceration, right? You have to start paying for your own incarceration starting in the 80s, starting in the 90s. And it's really those debt burdens compounded by the intergenerational racialized histories of wealth, wealth, um, sort of um, unequal wealth distribution, right? Passing it down intergenerationally that bring us to where we are before COVID hit. I'm not even going to talk about how COVID has deepened the the household indebtedness crisis. And so in terms of where the debt collective comes in, the debt collective says to this moment where people own extraordinary amounts of student debt, extraordinary amounts of medical debt, extraordinary amounts of housing debt, not to mention utilities, your phone bill, right? Not to mention for your own incarceration, folks who are in and out of the criminal punishment system owe about over $16,000 just from their involvement in that system alone. We often experience this as precarious. We experience it as disempowering. We experience it alone, isolated, ashamed, afraid. But what if we experienced it as collective leverage, right? And so what the debt collective, we always, we love to quote capitalists. So we often quote JP Getty here, who has a kind of famous phrase that at least is attributed to him that says, you know, if you owe the bank $100, the bank owns you, which is to say you have to fucking pay that. Am I allowed to swear on this? But if you owe the bank $100 million, right, which was true of folks like JP Getty, then you own the bank. And we see this in capitalism all around us, which is to say in these massive debt relationships, they are constantly renegotiating that. So it is to say that debtors, household debtors have to take a page out of the capitalist's playbook and understand that debt can be a form of power. It can be Leverage, right? So a debtor's union is the idea that all of that debt organized, 1.7 trillion alone in student debt, means that we own the bank. Now that sounds simple and it's kind of like a nicely wrapped in a bow idea. Actually, student debt doesn't come from banks in theory, it comes from the Department of Education, and that gets us into the kind of nuts and bolts of organizing. But I will say before I kind of end on this current moment that I don't think it's accurate to say this current moment is only about sort of massive indebtedness and deep, um, you know, kind of depoliticization. On the contrary, right? So when the Debt Collective recognized, it was strike debt at that time, recognized one T day, which was the day student debt hit 1 trillion in 2011, the media covered it. And you know what they did? They laughed at us. They derided us. Even the kind of like, you know, centrist, liberal media, NPR, right? They were like, These kids want their debts abolished and they want college to be free as if they couldn't remember when they went to college or their parents went to college. Public college was free, right? (laughs) Like the historical amnesia of that moment was radical. And now we're literally 10 years later, our first student debtors union won $1.5 billion in debt abolition. Every single presidential candidate across the spectrum, including Trump himself had to have a position on student debt. So I think it's, While it's really important to say that we are in a moment of actually unprecedented, including before 2008, household debt, I also think it's important to say that we're in a moment of kind of unprecedented organizing and awareness around debt. So I don't want to sort of strand us in um, that disempowered feeling.
1: And Hannah, it sounds like you were uh, putting the student debt crisis in the context of a broader loss of working class power, attack on working class power, which would seem to indicate that the uh, the, the campaign to get rid of this debt, to wipe it out, to get a, a debt jubilee is an issue of building working class power in the same way that we understand that we need to build working class movement. We need to rebuild the labor movement, et cetera, et cetera. Wiping out debt is a crucial part of that.
2: Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Um, and I guess I would say that, well, I, david, i'm gonna let I'm gonna let you take this next thing and then maybe I can jump in after you answer. But yes, absolutely. I, I guess I was just gonna say that one of the really interesting things about this moment is that what was often the case, what has been tri- historically the case for working class people of all backgrounds, right? has also increasingly crept up into what used to be recognized as the middle class and the white middle class in particular, and non-white folks trying to make their way into the middle class through predatory inclusion, right? The promise of inclusion of an education in the wake of the civil rights movement, except for student debt. The promise of an inclusion into the mortgage market, except at subprime rates, right? So there are also moments of, um, cross-class alliance in in a debtor's movement that I think are really important to strengthen a kind of broader workers' movement in this moment, for sure. Sorry, that's all I wanted to say about that.
1: Yeah, David, go ahead.
3: Yeah, so, you know, I, th- this connection, this this relationship between worker power, labor power, And debt is one I think that we're going to explore in a lot of depth, and certainly is one that I try to take up in this review. I mean, I think the title of this event is itself a provocation, right? So, debtors of the world unite is, of course, a reference. But by displacing the word workers with the word debtors, it raises this question that I think is fundamental to the work of the debt collective. And I want to just pause to say that it's very humbling to to work with hannah and with the deck collective i mean what they've accomplished in the past decade is 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 just monumental politically so it's i I agree it's a really exciting moment Um, but I, i think that it raises really deep questions and 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 far reaching questions about political organization domestically in the united states and as we'll get to later in the session internationally as well i think i came to the book from a slightly different angle than the the history of extraction and financial extractivism in the United States that, that Hannah was tracing out in, in the first part of the session, which is that you know we have such a debased conversation in the United States about political identity, you know, um, and this debate about uh, identity politics, it ranges between these two extremes. On the one side, to the people who say we have these mega identities, you know, like uh, there's these things are all layered together. My local identity is my partisan identity, and it's just all becoming this mega partisan, you know, Democrats versus Republicans, straight, narrow, polarized identity politics. On the other side, much more commonly for our Jacobin audience and Haymarket audience is we have too many identities. We're too fragmented along these different dimensions of class, ethnicity, background, etc. And so rarely in that truly debased and degraded conversation do we do we discuss which identities are the ones worth fighting for, worth preserving, which are the ones that we think will guide us towards the political horizon of our project as socialists, um, as, as social justice advocates. So. I think that's that's where I come to this book is in thinking, what are the politics that are contained in a debtor identity? Because every identity contains an analysis of where we are and a sort of horizon of political ambition. Um, and so, I, you know, I, this relationship between the, what is the debtor and what is the worker is really interesting. I mean, Hannah mentioned the cross-class potential of the worker identity. And this is something, you know, Micah, we're really keen to turn this back to you to think, you know, also through the relationship between these two things. Because the core, you know, the the core of this book, I think, is a is the comparison between what the debtor was and, sorry, what the worker was and the debtor is today. And I, I find this very compelling not least because of the kind of poetic justice that it contains. So if we think about the long history of rentierism and extraction, you know, everyone from Smith to Ricardo to Marx said that there were, you know, there were wages, there were profits, and there were rents. And rents were entirely other elements of this capitalist economy that should be frowned upon. I mean, everyone was, the classical political economists were united in thinking that this was passive income that should be you know, youth, later euthanized out of the capitalist economy, of course, leaving this core antagonism between capital and labor. But somehow in the midst of the neoclassical revolution, rents kind of disappeared as a category of economic analysis. And the rentier somehow became a capitalist Somehow we came to think that the guy who makes widgets and sells cars is the same as the speculator who makes derivatives and hawks them uh, around the world and you know, causes Wall Street to blow up and bubbles and you know, unleashes animal spirits on our economies to great and devastating effect. So there's something poetic about now organizing around the, around the debtor and say, you know what? If the if the capitalists are going to sorry, if the financiers and the rentiers are going to pretend to be capitalists then yeah, fuck it, the debtors are also workers, right? We also are the owners of this fictitious commodity, just as labor is the money. And alone, as Hannah was tracing out, we're completely alienated, easily exploited, easily picked off and sent into sort of lonely suffering. But together we own the bank, and that's uh, our capacity, our collective leverage against this new class of rentiers reap huge windfalls from our suffering. So, uh, you know, in that sense, it's really, really compelling. And I hear I'll turn it back to you, Michael, because I think that there are questions. I mean, if you want to get into it, there are questions about the distributional dimension of these identities. Now, certainly the people who are watching this and listening to this uh, are also engaged in questions about whether the worker is itself a uh, worthy of being a hegemonic identity in the 21st century, right? We've had these raging debate about the PMC, about the working class, and whether just because you earn a wage income means you are indeed the working class, et cetera, right? But... The same question can be posed about the debtor. So debt is, debt is a very complicated instrument. It funds corporations. It has, you know, it's, it's, it's mortgage debt largely held by, you know, wealthier households. It's also a source of basic day-to-day suffering and extraction from the poorest households in the United States. So this question about what is the hegemonic identity? Do we need one? How do these we want to relate these two together? You know, and maybe, Michael, this is where I'll turn it back to you and to you, Hannah, as well, is... Precisely where we started is what is the relationship we think between the worker and the debtor identities, and I'm posing a more zero sum relationship than probably needs to hold. But I think it's worth asking these questions of distribution and political horizon, and you know if we win, if we win as debtors, if we win as workers, what happens next? What kind, what are we reifying? Uh, in, in that sense, workers were reifying a productive capacity. As debtors, what are we reifying? Our humanity, sure, but what else beyond that? Anyway, I'm asking some questions. I'm keen to turn it back to you, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for,
1: for both of your responses to those. Well, questions. yeah, so this was the direction I was going to go in because you raise a lot of this stuff in your uh, review, and uh, you know maybe we've gotten uh, a bit ahead of ourselves for, for many of the uh, the listeners. I mean, the the basic idea. That you know, people like E.P. Thompson and other and many other Marxists, you know, emphasize over the last fifty-some years is about that you know class. your identity as a worker is not something that just sort of falls on you, given your place in the productive process. Uh, it, there has to be this process of class formation. You have to create the identity to see yourself as a worker who uh, identifies with other workers. Uh, and sees your interests in common, and that's 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 the whole. That's what you know, labor organizing and socials organizing. That's what it's all about, right? Is is that process of uh, formation of that identity? Uh, and so, in debt organizing, I mean, the the same question is is present. I mean, how is that uh, that identity as debtor? As a debtor who sees themselves to have a common cause and common interests with other debtors uh, around the country and around the world, how how do how do we do that? And uh, I guess what are the what are the possibilities there as well as uh, what are the limitations? Uh, Hannah, if you could answer that.
2: yeah, thanks. It's a great question, and it's really an organizing question, which I really appreciate. and I'm so I'm going to get to that one. But I just want to go back a little bit because, Um, David himself said he's like, oh, I'm making this zero sum, and I actually want to be really clear that when we were writing the book, and certainly in our organizing at the Debt Collective, these are not zero sum to us. So, Debtors of the World Unite does not replace Workers of the World Unite. Or David put it in this very lovely way that sounded really good. You know, he said it's what the worker was and what the debtor is, and nobody that I know at the Debt Collective would agree with that. Though it has a lovely poetic ring to it. (laughs) Um, And I should say, David wrote a great. This is not like a critique of the review. The review is very generous. I mean, like this was great, but. The idea is, of course, that capitalism is a dynamic system, right? Capitalism shapeshifts. So some people will say, oh, there was industrial capitalism and now there's financial capitalism and therefore then we needed a workers' union and now we need a debtors' union. That is not true. That is not an empirical account of how capitalism works in Los Angeles, where I am, in this nation where we live, let alone transnationally, right? Capitalism is at once industrial and financial. That, in fact, has been true for centuries. But the financialization that we see now and the way it affects our households has changed qualitatively, especially over the last thirty years. And so, what does that mean? There was this really oh, when you were like, and then the guy who makes widgets and the guy who makes derivatives—they're pretending they're the same person. One of the things that has happened, right, is these sort of classic um, industrial capitalist firms. Let's take um, General Motor or yeah, General Motors for example, right? The classic widget, right? The classic Henry Fordist line. Um, Starting, gosh, it must have been in the 1990s, right, with GM Finance, but this is true of GE, this is true of so many corporations. They start to make just as much money off of their financial arms as they do with direct sale of widgets, right? So the GM workers went on strike a couple summers ago. COVID has like messed up my time frame, but they want to go, it wasn't this fast, I think it was the summer before that, right? It and was that, like
1: 40 years ago. I don't even remember that period anymore.
2: Kind of hostile, but really, it was recent. Okay, and it was rad. It was fucking rad. Yeah. Imagine if everybody who held a loan from GM finance had gone on strike at the same time that those workers had gone on strike. Part of the reason that GM can withstand that strike is, sure, it's partially their global their global supply chain, right? But it is also because they are making a tremendous amount of their profit from financing. So if those workers who so wonderfully went on strike could reach out to the debtors union and say, hey, we're about to go on strike, get ready to withhold your payment, we could fuck GM up. And we could say, we actually want those cars to go all electric, not by 2035, which they just announced, which, bravo, fine, but by 2015 say right i guess i will also say the final thing that i also say which is kind of a reversal of that is so i'm a, a state employee right i work at UCLA in california so my i have a pension with calpers right one of the largest institutional investors on the planet i think actually the calpers pension fund we are in a moment of sort of radical rent debt all over this country billions and billions of dollars of rent debt all over this country we could imagine a renter strike, for example, targeting private equity landlords that bought up all the real estate in the wake of 2008, right? Except that if private equity was forced to take a haircut, CalPERS, all of those workers, would take a serious haircut too. So there are ways in which the worker and the debtor are absolutely entwined now in ways that our organizing has to get to. So then it finally takes me back, and I'll be very brief, to Micah's question of you know, how do we kind of... Um, build the identity. And I think that's absolutely right. It's not something that just falls upon you, right? It's something that you actually have to develop through political education, through sitting around with other people and realizing debt is always associated, as work still sometimes is, and certainly once was, with um, shame isolation, uh, right. Like a, um, a pecking order. I am, I am irresponsible. If I went into debt and everybody else around me, they must have had more financial literacy. Maybe I'm financially illiterate, right? Like all of that stuff. But if you come You're
1: speaking to, my internal monologue here, yeah.
2: And so if you come to a debtor's assembly, right, where you have the little red name tag, and instead of saying, hello, my name is, it says, hello, my debt is, and you write your debt amount there. And you walk around that room and you see everybody else who has the same debt. Some of them have debts for the reasons you do. Some of them have debts for other reasons. You start to say, wait a minute, we can't all be financially illiterate. Forty five million people hold that one point seven trillion dollars. Is that forty five million illiterate people or is that a system gone wrong? Is that a dramatic policy failure? It's a dramatic policy failure. And luckily, it gave us a ton of leverage. But you're absolutely right that it requires a kind of similar, uh, class formation identity formation it is a process but it is not and i want to be super adamant about this because i feel very passionately about it um it doesn't either succeed the worker in time it complements labor organizing in fact i think it would profoundly strengthen labor organizing to work kind of hand in glove with debtor organizing for the reasons i said
3: i want to i want to push you a bit further on this not because i think you do have the answers but i think it's worth it's worth digging even deeper in this so i mentioned you know, in my opening remarks, that every identity has both an analysis of the present is a product of this these these, you know um, these, these very imminent dynamics, and contains a view of, this, of a political horizon. You know, and worker. The reason why worker has been such a tractable and such an appealing political identity, I think, is because it carries us from exploitation to socialism. It's something that because it binds us to our political, sorry, to our productive capacity, both contains a sense of what has gone wrong by way of our alienation and carries the seed of hope for a political project that is then based on solidarity. So I must say, I'm less convinced by the collective leverage thing, and I'll say why. And I read this is something I raised in, in the piece, which is that you know consumers have tremendous collective leverage. The ability to withhold your payment from a corporation because they use sweatshops or they underpay their workers, that's something that we hear time and again is a source of leverage in a capitalist economy as rapacious as ours. But it's not something I think that any of the three of us or indeed the listeners, the viewers of this program would probably advocate as a vanguardist identity because what it's instantiating or what it's reifying is identity that's premised on our capacity to pay. You know, it, it, it's basically saying we are only as good as the dollar we can withhold. There's no doubt that being a debtor at the collective level, even when we realize when we transcend the alienation of being a lonely debtor, as Micah was saying, feeling irresponsible, you know, even when we transcend that, fantastic, we own the banks. But what's what's the project? I mean, I think the and I'm, I'm going to pass it back to you because I think the book does go there. Right. What comes next? And how do we make sense of because it's not just debt as an instrument, it, you know, and this I think it relates to the question of do we, debt cancellation, debt abolition. What is what is the horizon of ambition for this identity?
2: Yeah, I love this question. It's a wonderful question, and I I hope we do address it in the book. You're saying we do, but for listeners out there, we do try to address this question in the book, right? Which is that it doesn't make sense. Let's just talk about student debt. It's on a lot of people's minds right now, but we let's talk medical debt too. This is true for many forms of debt. It doesn't make sense to win debt abolition. And have the same system on the back end, right? Which is to say that the demand, the future vision of any debt union debtors union. So just as a a labor strike targets the boss, right. And it makes certain demands of the boss, which is to say, you know, I, at its most basic, I want a fair wage. I want benefits. I don't want children to labor. I want a weekend. Right. I mean, And making those, um, so the demand, like the the person who can offer you your demands, at least at that first tier level, before we're to actual socialism, right? Before we're to actual worker ownership is the boss. A debtor's union targets a creditor and it targets, so it doesn't, this is is the way we work. This is the way we finance what we need. Wages partially finance what we need, but the state also finances what we need, right? And banks also, so this is power over finance. And this is power over the workplace. Now, in the examples I just gave of GM and um, pension funds, these things overlap. They're not separate. But for the time being, let's recognize that they have two different targets. So if I'm saying we are going on a student debt strike, we're not going we're not just going on a strike to have all of our debts abolished so that so-called public college, like the one where I work, which I refer to as formerly public college, can go on charging as if it's a privatized college, right? No, you have to have student debt abolition and free college for all. You have to have medical debt abolition and Medicare for all. So it's about how the things we care about are resourced. It's a very direct line to what I've taken to calling reparative public goods, right? So yes, universal public goods, but that prioritize repair and redress of those intergenerational racialized harms that have so divided the left for so long, right? So it's actually, it's direct leverage over how the things we care about are financed versus how, what our, the kind of immediate outcome of what our working conditions are like. These are equally important. This is not me saying one is more important the other, than the other. It's simply saying that these things are different. And you see so many of the issues that have been so much at stake for folks I imagine are in this audience, right? Like in the presidential cycle with Bernie Sanders, whether it's Medicare care for all, whether it's college for all, right? These are the kinds of things that we can actually have power over as debtors. Um, And that's slightly different than what workers can have power over, at least most immediately.
1: So what you're saying, Anna, sounds good to me on a a theoretical level. Uh, But of course, we are less than two weeks into this new administration under Joe Biden, in which uh, the Debt Collective in particular is uh, engaging in organizing and pressure of the Biden administration to try to wring as much Debt cancellation and, and other things out of him as possible, um, and so I wonder if you could reflect on these first days of the Biden administration, the progress that you feel is or isn't being made on debt cl- cancellation, and given what you just said about how that ca- debt cancellation has to fit into this broader agenda, which includes all these other things like Medicare for all. Uh, you know, do you do you see that? Advancing, or is it just sort of like X amount of discrete dollars that uh, Joe Biden will be willing to uh, forgive, and maybe we'll get X, maybe we'll get X times two, but we 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 haven't that that uh, that progress hasn't been tied up with these other uh, kinds of policies that we need to get. So, how do you feel about the first days of the Biden camp, uh, the Biden administration?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess what I would say is part of the way I feel about the first days of the Biden administration is, of course, directly informed by the organizing that the Debt Collective, which is the only one I can speak to, but of course, others have been organizing as well. Obviously, DSA has been running great stuff around student debt, right? But the Debt Collective has been running the nation's first debtors union that to date has generated $1.5 billion in debt abolition, which is not only you don't have to pay debts you owed in the future, but people got their Their payments back from the federal government. These are folks who hold debts from for-profit colleges. Only we can talk about it. But it is to say that the way that I feel about the first couple days of the Biden administration is directly informed by how much I've seen the terrain shift under our feet and in response to building this kind of power. So, you know, folks may know that Bernie Sanders campaigns on this college for all legislation that he proposed. Right? It was written by Pramila Jayapal. Um, and Ilhan Omar, and when they announce it in the summer of 20, here we go again, summer of 2019, they invite debt collective strikers to Washington DC to announce the bill with them which would cancel all student debt, make public college free again on the back end, because they say to the debt collective, you have been making, these are your demands written into legislation. So there already is, as many people in this audience know, proposed legislation that would wipe out all of the debt, make public college free, and also transform labor conditions on college campuses. So for folks who know about adjunct labor situations and subcontracting and union busting on college campuses, right? So that history becomes incredibly important when we get to the Biden administration, because it's really easy. And, Micah, I agree with you. And it's like, are we going to get 10K or are we going to get 50K? And that's a miserable conversation to have. And I, I like I hate that conversation. And yet it's wild that we are even having this conversation in a kind of center right Democratic administration. Right. I mean, that is so much progress. So it's been in some ways it hasn't been a long slog at all. But, you know, we've been the debt collective started. We organized that first union in about 2015. So it's been about six years. And what we with other allies have been able to accomplish in that six years tells me that it will continue to be a fight. But so we did launch the Biden Jubilee 100. You can check it out. um, Debtcollective.org. So, it's 100 student debt strikers for the first 100 days of Biden's presidency to really put the pressure on exactly what Micah is saying, which is we don't want 10,000, we don't want 50,000, we want the debt abolished and free college for all on the back end. And we are going to call you on your bluff about caring about the racial wealth gap, because you, Joe Biden, with the flick of a pen via a power that you have called compromise and settlement can quite literally make all student debt go away without Congress, but you want Congress here. Georgia gave you Congress. So go ahead and do it with Congress, do it without Congress, right? So using that compromise and settlement power, which was also something that was brought to the table by Luke Heron, which is one of, who is one of the, the debt collective organizers. So even the kind of policy solution on the table Came out of the debt collective organizing as well. So I guess I'm an eternal optimist, but I the the Biden Jubilee 100 has been getting great attention. They've been I, I feel thrilled about what those hundred students are doing. I know there's a question in the chat about what it means to go on a debt strike, and I'd be very happy to answer some of those. I'll stop talking now, but I guess I feel optimistic, but I also understand the time that struggle takes. So I don't think I think we could potentially see fifty thousand and maybe even more. Um, in debt abolition from the Biden administration, are we going to see college for all in these first four years? No. Are we going to see it maybe in eight years, maybe in 12? I would say yes, absolutely, which is to say public college again, but not just for white people.
1: Well, you referenced uh, some of the questions that we're getting in the chat, which are related to this Question of what you know, what we think Joe Biden has been up to and why he's been up to the things, why the guy who plays like holds very direct responsibility for the student debt crisis. uh, Now he's the one where we're saying is it going to be ten? Is it going to be fifty? I mean, it is pretty mind boggling. He's he's the hope to undo all of the problems that he spent decades creating in this country and around the world. Um, But so related to. How we build the the momentum for wringing for, for whatever we can out of him are some very practical quest- questions from the chat about sort of what this uh, organizing looks like. Uh, one here, uh, I'm here for organizing on Reddit, which I, we should definitely speak to this given the power that we have seen this week on organizing on Reddit. So uh, what would happen if we all refuse to pay our debts? Would we all end up in collections? Another person asks if we can go on a debt strike without destroying our credit. Uh, These are very nuts and bolts questions. Uh, So Hannah, if you could speak to uh, both of those, that'd be helpful.
2: Absolutely. These are fantastic questions. Don't organize on Reddit or do organize on Reddit. You can actually <laughs> join the debtor's union. If you go to debtcollective.org, you can join the union and then you will have access to an online platform where everybody is having these exact conversations and you're getting answers from our histories of debt collective organizing. It's a, it's a platform that is not on Facebook. It's not on any of them. It's our own private platform for organizing. So I welcome everybody to come to debtcollective.org and ask these questions and work in community with one another. Here's what I'll say, and it takes us back to the question of labor organizing. If I'm a worker and I'm on the factory floor and I'm like, I don't get paid enough and there's a 10-year-old working next to me and I don't get weekends, I quit, right? Or I go up to my boss and say like, I want better wages and I don't want child labor and I want a weekend. My boss is going to be like, fuck off, you're fired. And I'll hire somebody else, right? It's the same thing with a debtor. If you just decide, oh, this debt is fucked up, I'm not going to pay it, like, you know, fuck you, Bank of America. Then Bank of America will say, thank you very much. And your, your credit will tank, et cetera, right? So just like organizing a labor strike takes a tremendous amount of time. It takes a tremendous amount of, of solidarity building. It takes a tremendous amount of research of your targets. It takes a lot of political education. It t- takes a lot of media work. So, too, with a debt strike. And one of the things, this is the last thing I'll say, but one of the things I want to point out about the title of the book, right, is can't, the, first, the first phrase is can't pay. And the second phrase is won't pay. So in student debt alone, there are 1 million new student debtors every year who cannot pay, new ones every year. So right now we're probably at four or five, six million people who are not able to pay. They are already suffering these consequences but they are suffering them alone. They can't pay and they're suffering alone. But what if together they all say, and we won't pay? It's the same concept right now of thinking like a de facto rent strike across the country, right? If there are 30 million people who cannot pay their rent right now for COVID-related or other reasons, they are on. They cannot pay. What does it look like to politicize that, to collectivize that as a demand around social housing? But to, to very directly answer the questions in the chat, it takes a long time, and you have to be thoughtful, and you have to do it with others to organize a labor strike or a debt strike. And I'm telling you, audience out there, come to debtcollective.org. That's what we're doing, and we're excited to bring you in.
1: You can't strike on your own, right? Strike has to be a uh, collective, uh, collective project. Um, let's talk about uh, the international context, uh, David. Uh, it seems like the uh, most promising examples of success in these kinds of campaigns target the state or target states. Uh, for example, Bolivia and Ecuador. And we're talking about a different kind of debt here, obviously not just student debt. Uh, you know, the broader Context of all of the kinds of debt that are out there, uh, Bolivia and Ecuador are fighting back against the IMF, which is uh, ultimately funded mostly by other governments, and then student debt. You know, similarly, the government is the main creditor, uh, which which uh, I think Hannah mentioned earlier. So, can can you talk about the role of the state as a creditor for for all these different kinds of debt? That are crushing so many people around the world and also what that means about this the state as our organizing target the the, the uh, you know our target for making these demands upon
3: yeah i think it's a remarkable actually i shouldn't put this past um U- us readers and listeners you know insofar as our our country is truly the, the blind hegemon we, we we tend to constantly inflate our crises with respect to the rest of the world. And I think pay less attention to the the similarities um, in in the, the crises we face both as a, as a nation and at the level of the household. If you look at the household debt levels in the United States, they pale in comparison to household debt in other countries. We have a huge crisis of the financialization of education, but let's... Not forget that no one who gave a student loan was ever given a fucking Nobel Peace Prize. Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank were told that they were the solution to global poverty and humanitarians in the face of the financial constraints faced by households in the Global South. Now, this was then followed by if we want to tell as hannah has told the story of, of the financialization of the u.s economy if you look at just mexico for example the flagship most impressive company microfinance corporation in mexico is called compartamos extremely uh extremely you know it's what it's hailed as a success in the realm of microfinance because it's been so durable and so profitable to financiers and you know it's crucial to explain Compartamos not as a local success, but the fact that the IFC, International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector wing of the World Bank, uh, de-risked their IPO. So basically promised investors that they would. uh, This is this is good research from Philip who's with in the debt justice group with with Hannah, the Progressive International, but de-risked the IPO of Compartamos in 2005, I think, saying. You know, we'll make sure you make money on this microfinance corporation. And do not worry because Compartamos has made a fuck ton of money. Why? I'll tell you why. The global average level of interest on microfinancial loans is 30%, which is extortionate to a degree that is unfathomable to most people in the United States. I mean, the idea you're asking that that these interest rates are so perfectly regressive that the poorest are paying the highest levels of interest is already unconscionable in the context of a Nobel Peace Prize that was given to the Grameen Bank. But in Mexico, the average microfinance interest rate is 80%. Households are expected to pay 80% on their microfinance loan. The average Compartamos the great savior of microfinance in Mexico, is over 100%. Now the World Bank has said, oh, don't worry, the ROI on microfinance investments in a Taqueria or your little, you know, whatever little business you set up in in Chiapas is 120%, which is fucking nonsense. These people are being wrecked. In Cambodia, you look at what's happening in microfinance, you know, hundreds of suicides, obviously farmers in India who are also caught in the same trap, hundreds of suicides on the basis of the same household crises of debt with far less, far fewer prospects for organizing visibility and voice. So I think it's also critical to frame the, you know, insofar as henna has made this really sort of convincing case for debt as a master framework for understanding the relations of exploitation in contemporary capitalism. It's crucial to understand the, the international dimension of that, because it's just so underrepresented, these <laughs> the extortion dynamics that are, you know, financialized in the exact same ways and play out in, in poor families leading to devastation across the global south. So that's just at the household level. Michael, you asked me also about the this, this sovereign debt. And I think I mean, the only thing I'd say before turning it back to you guys is. The, is to remark on, you know. I, too, as a U.S. citizen, am amazed by how much the, the the landscape has shifted in my lifetime on the question of debt. You know, really, it's amazing to see, even in the last five years, just how everything has changed. And I, I, you know, in the review, I also praise the sense in which the debt collectives work, I think, is such a critical advance in the legacy of Occupy Wall Street. I think, we, you know, we, we're moving beyond what was turned out to be a kind of a populism that lacked bite by speaking in this language of the 99% to really talk about, okay, what is the relation of exploitation we're talking about here? Really moving us towards an organizationally helpful framework of debt and exploitation, I think is amazing. But that is nowhere to be found on the international level. you I mean, look what's happening with the IMF and the COVID-19 crisis, just ramming down the throat of these global South governments who are in desperate need. The same types of conditionality and structural adjustment demands that we saw 50 years ago. Nothing's changed, you know. And I think our work in the Progressive International, trying to push against what the IMF is doing in, in a country like Ecuador, has taught us a lot about just how little the IMF has learned about how debt, it, what the impact of these debt uh, agreements have on on these countries. So I think that there is a it feels a bit schizophrenic sometimes to enter a U.S. conversation that, as Hannah said, is full of despair but also full of hope, and then to zoom out internationally and think it's that 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 the U.S. the United States itself has exported those same debt dynamics to other parts of the world, but not exported the same hope for collective organizing and the same paradigmatic break with. Uh, you know what? Uh, with the yeah this model of financialization that is beginning to kind of wear against even that center right sentimentality. So yeah, that that's what gets me up in the morning. I think, Micah.
1: Uh, before I uh, have Hannah respond to this, uh, David, can you just let people know who are watching who aren't aware what the Progressive International is and what your work is generally, and then maybe you can mention how you think that its its work can play into the kind of organizing we're talking about here.
3: Yeah, sure. So, you know, the Progressive International is uh, has the ambition to be a, a, an international that is well suited to the 21st century. So it's uniting, organizing and mobilizing progressive forces around the world, not just political parties, but trade unions, publications, neighborhood associations, debtors unions. Uh, uh, and in all these kinds of organizations really representing the rich associational life that we live today where people may have more of an affiliation with their debtors unions than they do with their political parties. So we want to bring all those people under one roof in this new international asking, how can we expand the toolkit for internationalism to really bind these struggles across borders with this with this kind of two directional theory of change? We need to do a better job of linking our local struggles doing exactly what Hannah was describing at an individual level. We do it internationally as well, saying, you know, if you're in Beirut fighting the IMF, it's the same as being in Quito and fighting the IMF. And we need to bring those into a common struggle against those planetary crises, against those planetary institutions like the IMF, and equally drawing the attention from the planetary level back down to local level, saying, we're not gonna let those same IFIs get away with what they're getting away with at a domestic level, because the eyes of the world are on Ecuador, the eyes of the world are on Bolivia to prevent another coup. So you know, debt is central to this precisely because you know we just keep spinning wheels on this. And you know, we've been here over and over again. And Hannah and I were discussing this before we went live. But uh, you know, I was asking Hannah what's novel about our situation. I, the truth is nothing. You know, um, we can talk all day long about the the, the mutations in the Washington consensus, but frankly. It remains a Washington consensus. I mean, I'm convinced by some arguments from people like Daniela Gabor that it's morphed into a more financialized version, a Wall Street consensus, which I think is relevant to our discussion today. But the basic idea, the basic distribution of power remains the same. And the role of the United States government in that. So to bring this finally back around to your point, Micah, what's amazing is this kind of refractory uh, politics where these this, the United States is, is becoming this very exciting laboratory for debt organizing, against the state, precisely, to, to make these demands. But still, somehow, that's not transmitted. There's a broken mechanism, broken transmission mechanism to lead from those activists domestically in the United States to the IFIs and the other IOs, where the US really holds sway. You know, From the WTO, to the IMF, to the World Bank, et cetera, where the US is the dominant player. Somehow, that organizing hasn't yet tipped over or hasn't constructed the democratic transmission mechanism that's going to get us from these local victories to a global paradigm shift. You know, and I, I don't have the answers to that question, but I think we're trying to construct through the work of the Progressive International, a kind of planetary front that would have the strength and unification to win in those kinds of struggles.
2: Yeah, speaking as a card-carrying member of the Progressive International, it's definitely, and I'm also an anthropology professor, right? I wrote a book on U.S. oil companies in Central Africa, so I, I do my best always to have an internationalist view. And we've actually, at the Debt Collective, had some incredibly exciting collaborations with folks in South America in particular. In fact, I do think there's a Debt Collective chapter in Chile, precisely because so many of the empirical conditions are similar, right? So we 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 have some um, budding work on that front, in large part thanks to our one of our organizers, Jason Wozniak. So shout out to Jason for his like South America connections. I guess I just wanted to pick up a teeny bit on on Micah's prompt of like the state and what the largest thing I want to say is in debtor organizing, you have to know who the creditor is, which is just another way of saying you have to know who the target is. And sometimes the target is the state, sometimes the target is a bank, sometimes the target is a mortgage lender, right? And like identifying the creditor is sometimes a lot more difficult than identifying your boss. Not necessarily these days, right? And that shout out to Ivan Pardo, Rideshare Drivers United, right? I mean, there's a lot of really interesting, you know, kind of... um, uh, organizing going on around uh, the bosses as well. But I guess what I wanted to say is because, uh, the debt collective, we do have our roots in occupy wall street and all of us came into, not all of us, many people have joined since then, but many of us have been in there since occupy wall street. And of course, when we're going into occupy wall street, who is our imagined target, right? Our imagined target is wall street, broadly conceived banks, probably more specifically. So we pull the threads and we pull the threads and we're trying to go after the banks. And who do we find? We find the fucking government right? And if that's not a perfect illustration of neoliberalism, I don't know what is. We just say, I teach neoliberalism all all, all day, every day, right? Like I'm a college professor, but like in my own personal experience of like trying to go after, thinking we're going after the bank, organizing against banks, but then doing the research, pulling the threads, trying to figure it out and being like, oh, actually the creditor, the regulator and the collector is my government, (laughs) I mean, it's just such a a paradigmatic example in practice of what neoliberalism means. And when the target is the state, um, the fight is different than when the target is banks. And so I just wanted to note that there are some questions About histories of student debt strikes and histories of rent strikes. So, there's definitely some of those histories in here. I would encourage people to pick them up. But let's think for a moment about the de facto rent strike that is going on in this country. And then I'll say one more thing about international, and then I'll be done. The target in a de facto rent strike, it depends what the demand is, right? If the demand is cancel rent, then that is, in effect, a demand on the federal government because it's essentially saying to the Federal Reserve, make the landlords whole in a variety of ways, right? But imagine if we had an actual, I mean, they're incredible tenants unions, shout out to the LA Tenants Union, the Crown Heights Tenants Union, the Kansas City Tenants Union, there are amazing tenants unions out there. But imagine if we actually had the infrastructural capacity that we are all working toward, right, to have a nationwide tenants union. You know who we would find at the end of many of those rental payments? Private equity landlords huge corporate landlords who took advantage in the wake of 2008 of black communities latinx communities disproportionately losing their homes bought them all up and then rent them back to those same communities how beautiful would it be if we could take that national landscape because private equity of course works on a transnational landscape if we get blackrock to take a significant haircut we are already working across borders if we do it with the power of the billions of dollars that are unpaid rental arrears that in the state of New York and the state of California are being converted into household debt as we speak by law. So I guess I would just say as somebody who has like approached this as an activist for many years, as somebody who also tries to approach it as a scholar, the utter intertwining of banks and the U.S. government in particular, through the instrument of the U.S. dollar, and there's some really good material on this for, on Progressive International. If any, I learned a lot of what I know from Progressive International thinkers and organizers. The U.S. dollar is really the common denominator there that's coming out of the Federal Reserve, that's powering the IMF, that's powering BlackRock, that's powering all of these big firms, and it's powering foreign banks too. So I guess the last thing that I'll say about, there's a question in the chat about what does this kind of transnational organizing look like? I agree with David, we don't know, we're all inching toward it join, let's all inch together, right? Part of it looks like understanding internationally, but also just understanding that fact. It's not only the IMF, obviously it's the IMF that works internationally, but it is these large banks and it is the Federal Reserve, right? So understanding what are the actual institutions that are working across borders, who are the actual creditors, and thus who are the targets? And this isn't anything new, sadly, as David has said, right? This is an old analysis, but it is equally true now and perhaps more true than Recently, in under under COVID, which has been so disastrous for for um, national economies in the global south, so I do think that tracing those institutions across borders, even when you have a national revolution like Greece had, right, an incredible victory, leftist victory that happened in our lifetimes, and that was undone precisely because the troika is not limited by a nation state, right? It's like what would it have looked like if we had a transnational debtors' union that could step in? And bolster Greece at that moment against the Troika. That to me, and hack tip Astra, disaster, Astra Taylor, sorry, Astra Disastra, for that. But um, that's what I would say. Uh, uh,
1: you both have mentioned in passing the role of the U.S. as the you know, dominant imperial power around the world. I mean, and not just at the end of a barrel of a gun, although we know that that's also the case. But but in its financial power around the world. So uh, that raises the question to me of what. Uh, not, not that Americans need any more reason to, to think about themselves and, and the importance of themselves as Americans. But what is the importance of organizing here in the uh, the heart of this uh, of, the, of the imperial power of, of the world, the global hegemon? And what, when, what impact might it have in the other kinds of international organizing that you all were just talking about that we need to be uh, connected to, too?
3: I'm very I get very jittery around this question because I think that in general, I, I like to think about it as as, as there is there are hegemony enforcing modes of solidarity and there are hegemony eroding modes of solidarity. So I get very nervous about trying to draw more even more attention to the United States uh, and it, what's happening domestically because I think holy shit the experience we just had with the this election cycle you know with the world literally just watching every second and as it was sort of relayed by our you know page six media channels to the world made me a bit queasy uh and, and feel bad about myself. But but I do think um yeah, I I do think that if we can make the blind hegemon slightly less blind, that would be a huge victory. So uh, you know, has mentioned uh, the U.S. dollar, which is a very complicated international monetary system is very complicated in terms of kind of the way that the dollar is a public private system that and euro dollars. And we could spend a whole session and I hope we do spend a whole session in the future talking about how the dollar system plays into these demands for fiscal austerity and uh, the debt crisis in the global south. I think it's super important. I also think that there are just easier, you know, less complicated, more direct ways of thinking about this problem, which is, you know, the US is the major player. So many of these viewers or listeners may not even be familiar with the gentleman's agreement that the US has preserved since the formation of the Bretton Woods system in 1944, which guarantees that the European community will be able to appoint a European to the head of the International Monetary Fund and that the US president will be able to appoint the head of the World Bank. Um, And that between the two of them, the U.S. and the Europe, there will always be a a U.S.-Europe gentleman's agreement to run these Bretton Woods institutions, which have become the kind of global policemen of debt and restructuring and structural adjustment uh, around the world. So just, you know, trying to introduce that international dimension. I mean, if the core of the Debt Collective's work and the conversation we've been having here has been, we lose... When one of us is left alone, you know, we win when we're all together in a common union, that same sentiment needs to be internationalized. I just don't think it's that, co- it, it doesn't take that much for us to try to shift the needle. Sorry. It doesn't take, I don't think it, it's costly for us activists to speak in this language you know, again, Mike, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts about where the alter globalization movement went from Seattle in 2000 to today. I find it very depressing to think it's kind of evaporated. but. You know, just trying to articulate some of these demands alongside our conversation that we're having domestically about student debt to say, you know, we won't stand for the same banks that we're talking about that Hannah would have mentioned to be conducting the same exact type of predatory financial behavior in other parts of the world. We won't stand for the U.S. government, our government democratically elected to be pushing the IFIs that we control to be demanding, you know, just let's continue with the Ecuador example where the IMF between in the last two years is responsible for 7,000 layoffs of medical workers, leading Ecuador to have one of the worst COVID-19 death rates in the world, twice the per capita death rate of the United States, because the IMF was driving an austerity agenda. You know, who controls the IMF? We like to think nobody, because I guess it's easier, more politically convenient for us to pretend these are just raw technocrats. No, the U.S. government does. You know, we, 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 we are a majority shareholder in, in, in the IMF and we control that fund. So trying to just push the frontier of our political imagination, expand the depth or move, you know, just add a couple extra demands to the debt agenda domestically. Um, you know, I feel like these are gains that have been that are, that are slowly being won on the Green New Deal agenda to think an in international dimension of what justice would look like beyond our borders. But that hasn't come back to the debt conversation just yet. I think that that's the next phase of this uh, thinking is, you know, just even our friends across, this, across the border in Mexico are just being, you know, um, forced into destitution and poverty because the same corporations the banks that we're up against. So I think that there's a way of internationalism agenda that's not costly for U.S. activists, but can have a lot, have a huge impact globally on, uh, you know, the prospects for a solidarity constituted at that international level.
1: Uh, a very easy question, hopefully, to answer, which is a good question, it means people are actually interested in what the hell we're saying here. Uh, are there historical am- examples of rent slash mortgage and student loan strikes that we can read more about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first student debt strike that we've understood, at least in US history, is the student debt strike that the Debt Collective organized starting in 2015 with people who held debts from for profit colleges that's chronicled in this book. Um, it's chronicled actually in an article that I wrote called debtors of the world unite. I think it's chronicled in another Boston review article that's called, um, it's another funny Marxist pun, but I can't think of it now. Anyway, so you can find a lot of stuff about the the Corinthian, the initial Corinthian strike, rent strikes and mortgage strikes. Absolutely. So I named some really fabulous, militant tenants unions that I'm in touch with and know, of course, the LA Tenants Union here where I live, the Kansas City Tenants Union, Crown Heights Tenants Union. Um, inter- I would look, I would go check them out to check out rent strikes historically. I think one of the things that's really interesting about this moment related to, but different from 2008, is that real private property, real estate in particular, is at issue right now. And there's an interesting way that it hasn't yet been mediated, meaning like shown up in the media in the way that it did in 2008, which is to say that like in the wake of the mortgage crisis, kind of the, the cornerstone of U.S. capitalism in this case, which is to say the, the mortgaged single family home was at issue. And it really did make it feel like the foundations of capitalism were rocky. <laughs> there is a way now that that has simply moved from the mortgage holder to the tenant right so if there are 30 million arguably far more tenants who have not paid their rent that also means that there are all these mortgage holders who are themselves benefiting from moratoria right that say they don't have to pay their mortgage on time or they only have to pay a certain number right so that same kind of bank mediated cornerstone of us, which is also far beyond us borders, transnational capitalism, which is to say real estate is really on the table right now. And I think as people who I hope are organizers, many of us, and certainly as people who like read about this stuff and think about this stuff a lot, I think, um, to use a badly chosen word, to capitalize on this moment, to understand this moment. And even if we're not able to organize for what we want, which would, say, be expropriation of privately owned, um, expropriation of everything that BlackRock was able to buy up, for instance, in the wake of 2008, and turning it over, in my opinion, not to the government, because I wouldn't want HUD as my landlord, personally. And obviously, public housing has an incredibly racist, violent history of radical policing in this country, but what social housing would look like. There's a great white paper out of NYU called the Proposal for a Social Housing Development Authority. So knowing, I know this isn't the person was asking about historical precedents, and there are historical precedents, and you can find them linked out on the websites of those orgs. But I also want to draw our attention to this moment, right, which is a moment of not just a fight against a single landlord, but where there are literally hundreds of billions of dollars on the table. In payments from mortgage holders to banks, right? There's a liquidity crisis right now that we, that we can pay attention to and have some leverage over. So, and then in terms of student debt strikes, yeah, read the book, read the articles, check out the Debt Collective. You'll find a bunch of stuff.
1: We would also be remiss. We've we've spoken for over an hour at this point, and we have not mentioned the uh, the current organizing going on at Columbia University. Uh, as well as last year, there was uh, a tuition strike at the University of Chicago, right? Uh, that ended like in May of 2020. Um, Hannah, can you it, could just fill people in briefly who don't aren't aware of either of those things, what's been going on in those two schools?
2: I can absolutely. So, Micah, thanks so much for bringing that out, and shout out to the Columbia tuition strike, which at this point I think is kind of the the largest that's ever happened, at least in this um, nation. Which is to say that. A whole bunch of Columbia students and there are students from other universities as well have decided to withhold payment and or be very strategic because any of you know, if you've ever made payments that don't simply just come through your loan and you don't see them, there are different deadlines. Like if you don't pay this by this date, then you can't enroll. But if you don't pay this by this date, then you can't get your health insurance, right? There's this kind of like um, complicated pay schedule. So using tactically, right, using that pay schedule to withhold money from the university to make a series of demands, right? Demands around divestment from fossil fuels, demands around abolition, cops off campus, right? Demands around, gosh, I wish I had their lists of demands in front of me, but they're incredible. There's a whole bunch. I mean, they've been working closely with land back movements. I mean, it's a really talk about David's point about broadening demands and that it doesn't kind of take anything away from us to, to broaden our demands in the moment. I feel like the Columbia tuition strike has been visionary. In not simply saying we want um you know tuition to go down <laughs> or we want campus housing to be cheaper, right? Things that it's it's like a um social justice visit vision of tuition tuition organizing, right? So making the analogy again to labor unions, what does a social justice union look like versus just kind of a straight up workplace union? So yeah, shout out to the to the Columbia folks who are organizing super hard right now and doing a great job and have reached out to the debt collective and we've been in regular contact with them and are so thrilled by that. And you see I just need to like mercilessly pressure my students right now who probably aren't watching, but I will say it anyways. The University of California system is the largest public university system on the planet. California has like the sixth largest economy of any entity in the world. And the UC system, I think, is the single largest employer. Talk about the intersection of worker organizing and debtor organizing. In California, UC students think about a tuition strike. If you want there to be public college, in this country and on this planet, tuition strike. And even those of us who pay by debt for college, you can have your servicer withhold your payments. You can call up your servicer and say, I want my payment withheld. Just saying, I can't say it in class because I wouldn't actually directly pressure my students to do that because that's effed up. But here I'm on like a haymarket webinar, and they're probably <laughs> not here, so maybe it'll get back to them. <laughs> you
1: know, hopefully, it trickles down. Right, uh, right. Yeah, do, do, just uh, I feel like I should shout out uh, specifically the Columbia Young Democratic Socialists of America chapter because they played a, a key role uh, in in that uh, fight. Not the only role, of course, but and, and what, as, as you mentioned, Hannah, the way that they have uh, brought in they brought in uh, you know uh, divestment around uh, you know, green new deal, uh, questions in, in their organizing and tying, uh, what Columbia is doing and gentrifying Harlem. I spoke on a panel that they put on, uh, last week and it was, it was a uh, fantastic, extremely impressive uh, stuff. So, uh, another question from the chat, uh, do the panelists have thoughts on organizing in the suburbs, given that so many people have been gentrified out of urban areas into subprime mortgages in the suburbs?
3: Yeah, I mean, so I'll just speak quickly on this because, because I am technically a, a housing scholar and I've spent a, a significant chunk of my young professional life working on um, slum organizing and, and and the housing question. So, I think that things get very very complicated with the housing market because this is it's where we start to strain some of the more unifying modes of organizing that we were talking about before because the housing market, so to frame this again, so I work a lot in the political economy of, of, of housing and specifically the political economy of what I call asset dualization. So housing as the primary driver of, of inequality, wealth inequality in the United States, Hannah referred a lot to the, the racial wealth gap, which is located a lot in, in uh, asset ownership and specifically in housing. And the problem with housing markets is they are broadly zero sum. So, Uh, You know, the the value of my house uh, rises at the same time that the rent levels in my neighborhood also rise. So I have a directly uh, sort of um, conflicted or antagonistic relationship as a homeowner, as I do to the renter next door and vice versa. And this makes uh, thinking about the housing question very difficult, difficult. So, you know, in my academic work, I look at the relationship that asset prices have to uh, right-wing reactions, which is a pretty sta- pretty consistent finding we have across advanced uh, capitalist economies, that um, this insider-outsider relationship is responsible for a lot of the kind of major political dynamics, both in driving left redistributive movements in urban areas, as well as driving sort of more right-wing resentment um, in uh, those parts, those sort of bust Parts of the economy that have not won from the asset boom in, in cities, so the suburbs become a very occupy a very complicated place. I mean, first of all, which suburbs? Right? There are suburbs in part of the country that have gained massively from the asset boom of the past thirty years and the transition from, you know, uh, a, an inflation regime based on labor to an inflation regime based on assets that we had in the post vocal shock 1980s transition that Hannah described, I'm getting very technical here. But the point I'm trying to to make is that um, we have a distributional conflict along the asset cleavage between asset owning insiders and asset excluded outsiders that creates huge problems for organizing around the housing question. Uh, And I think that this is the start of another session that hopefully Haymarket will host in the future. But I think that um it creates coalitional at a meso level really complicated coalitional questions because i think that renters can form a kind of common basis for and really exciting new movement against exploitation that can be related to other forms of debt student debt as well as to the you know worker exploitation but this this you know we have this whole question of of housing needs to be read in the longer history of what's known as uh, asset-based welfare systems, where we had uh, fiscal transfers replaced by a deregulated mortgage system that basically told people that you don't need a pension, you just need a house. So things get very complicated very quickly there in terms of organizing across what we call the asset cleavage. Um, I don't think that, you know, it, it's the most fertile ground in terms of thinking about the suburbs, urban question, especially thinking about not just that, but also between boom and bust areas that have gained and lost in the transition to so, sort of superstar cities and left behind areas. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, sure, I'm I don't know if you have a comment on this as well. All is to say, I, I think the matrix. Politically, just becomes very complicated in thinking about who wins and who loses and who's exploited and who's not because of the ways in which asset prices have played such a fundamental role in U.S. political economy at the broad and deep level over the past 30 years.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think David's definitely the expert here in a way that I'm not. I do have a response to what David said, and then I have a, a response that's really about kind of the organizing that we've done in the debt collective in response to this question about, about suburbanization and space more generally, like where people are. Um, but first, in response to David, you know, I would say, so I, I hear everything David is saying, and I, I think I understand it. And I, I in, in principle, I agree with it, and I certainly agree with that really important, the sort of increasing importance of assets, right? That like great sentence that he gives where it's like, you don't need a pension, you just need a house. So like, don't worry workers, (laughs) like you can let your pension go as long as you can buy a house. And that this sets up this kind of antagonism, a kind of a a neat antagonism between homeowners and tenants, especially as David is saying, right? You're a homeowner, you're essentially only reliant on your house for as an asset building, because your wages suck, you have no pension, you can't afford your health insurance. So right. So it's like, All you have is the fact that your house is going to appreciate as an asset. How does your house appreciate as an asset? Real estate around you becomes more valuable. You want that to happen because that's all you have. But that means that people around you can't afford their rent. And so that's what I understand how David is explaining this antagonism. I agree that that's there in theory, and it's certainly there in practice too. But I actually think in kind of more fine-grained practice, there are, and David's not saying this isn't possible, but there are possibilities for organizing across that especially because i feel like 2008 radically destabilized what it the sort of stability of homeownership right which is to say when you look at millions and millions of people being foreclosed upon and kind of realizing that really all they owned was a shit ton of debt and they were at the the kind of absolute mercy of the banks they were at the absolute mercy of subprime they were at the absolute mer- mercy of sort of rising adjustable rate mortgages and then we fast forward to this moment right when in legisl- state legislation after state legislation state moratoria after state moratoria you see the major corporate landlords and the apartment lobbies getting to write the bills and writing out small homeowners right who might have one or two homes and they have like 3 to 6 tenants or something i actually in this exact we live in i we are tenants in los angeles and we live in a property that has 4 and i think our landlord probably owns like two or three more of these right i actually see a possibility of these small l- mortgage holders <laughs> and their tenants uniting to say bail us out and fuck blackrock Now, the problem, as my comrade and colleague, Andrew Ross, and mentor, Andrew Ross, pointed out to me, is when you say fuck BlackRock and win, you also fuck CalPERS. You also fuck worker pension funds for those very few workers who still have, right? This, again, is that interrelationship between uh, labor and finance today, right? So I would love nothing more than a to see BlackRock take a haircut in this moment, which is to say them not be able to pay their debts, and that's fine. Just reshuffle, right? And see the Fed, the Feds bail out the small homeowners and the and the tenants. But what would actually result from that is that for the millions of workers across the state of California, the lucky few who are able to have a pension, right, that that would result in a sort of radical depleting of their assets. So I guess that's just one thing I want to say. I guess I see some kind of more I see cracks in that how people are experiencing homeownership right now, those that get to experience it. I don't know much about that, but I do see cracks in it. Um, But then the other thing I'll say just about the debt collective's experience is that unlike labor organizing, that's not totally true. That's an oversimplification. But often in labor organizing, you share a workplace with the folks you're organizing with, right? So I'm thinking of the recent... um, Really fantastic LA teachers union strikes, of course, thinking about Micah's great writing on the Chicago teachers union strikes, right? Even though they're all at different schools, they share, um, they share a rough geographic area. They can usually meet one another in real space and they actually share, they can all go out on strike in front of where their actual schools exist, right? Debtor organizing has a spatial problem, which is to say all the people who owe debts to Bank of America, all people who owe debts to the Department of Education, we are radically dispersed over space, not only nationally, but internationally. So this question of like suburbs, not suburbs, city, not city, it is to say, if we're organizing by creditor, in certain ways, it doesn't matter where we are. In other ways, of course, we always need to have grounded organizing bases, right? So we do have locally, the debt collective does have locally based chapters. We have a really strong chapter in Philly. We have a startup chapter in LA, right? There are different kind of locally based chapters that can run local campaigns and support national campaigns. But many of our campaigns have been national and they can bring in people in part through that online platform that I told you though, the debt collective is certainly not a believer that like online platforms are places where you organize. This is not me saying that, but it is to say that debtor organizing changes, um, geographic space changes, how we have to think about geographic space in terms of, um, collective power. So don't worry if you're in the suburbs, still join. (laughs) That's the bottom line.
1: Uh, David, do you have anything you want to add in there? No, I feel ashamed for how deep of
3: a rant I went on about housing about housing before, and I think we're coming to the end of our session. I think it was Hannah's brought it nicely back around to a more hopeful point of uh, a urban suburban uh, cross spatial coalition that can mobilize for debt justice.
1: Uh, great. Oh, and Hannah, yeah, there's been a question that was brought up several times about people's credit scores, because obviously this is something that is at stake here in these debt strikes. So can you can you talk about that question of whether or not people's uh, lives will be ruined with a horrible credit score for the rest of their lives if they decide to take collective action against debt?
2: Yeah, it's such a great question, right? So folks are asking these questions about what happens when I go on a debt strike, right? What are the consequences of going on a debt strike? We are slightly, or I hope folks in this audience are, are more familiar about the potential consequences of going on a labor strike, right? Depending on if it's protected or not, if it's wildcat or not, if it's in contract or not, right? Are they going to bring in scab workers? Are they going to fire you? Or that, right? Like, what are, so we kind of have a sense of those consequences. And folks are kind of piecing together the potential consequences of a debt strike. One of them, of course, is a trash credit score. And some people are willing to say, oh, whatever, a trash credit score is nothing, but it makes it very hard to access housing if you are a tenant. It can make it incredibly hard to access public benefits, right? I mean, so there are all kinds of very serious consequences. Your wages can be garnished. Your tax returns can be garnished. Again, it actually depends what kind of debt you're striking, consumer protections so-called consumer protections vary. And Micah alluded to this earlier, but it is literally because of Joe Biden, literally, it is only because of Joe Biden, that student debt has zero consumer protections. So the federal government can garnish your wages. They can garnish your tax return. They can garnish your social security. And that is, and, and it's not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Thank you, Joe Biden. And how sweet it will be when we can make him undo that fucking history. But anyways, um, So the question about the credit score, again, I just want to bring back this can't pay, won't pay. Often there are already folks, right? Millions and millions of people can't pay their medical bills, can't pay their student loan bills, can't pay the bills they got from being incarcerated, can't pay their housing bills, right? And they are suffering the consequences alone which is to say trashed credit score, which is to say wage garnishment, tax return garnishment, right? So the first move is the can't pay, won't pay. The first 15 people in a strike that eventually expanded wildly who went on strike publicly from the Corinthian colleges were already not paying and they were already suffering the consequences alone. So the question is, when is the inflection point when those of us who are still paying, so for example, I said at the beginning, my family has about $80,000 of student debt and we're in a moratorium now, we're not paying it back now. But in general, we try to pay precisely because of these deep consequences. We have kids, we're tenants. What if we get kicked out? What if we can't find a place to keep our kids, right? I mean, like real questions. The question is, when is that inflection point when those of us who can pay pay? Won't pay. One of the things that we've done at the Debt Collective is also devise kind of legal mutual aid tools. We have one called Defense to Repayment. So when that came up in the for profit sphere, we had those people fill out a legal tool and send it as a petition to the Department of Education. 90,000 people did it, and it changed the Department of Education's regulation. We were invited, you know, it was like a Labor negotiation. We were invited to the table. We got to negotiate it and negotiated rulemaking. And now the law of the land is that student debtors from for profit colleges have a defense to repayment. So there are also legal ways to kind of refuse or withhold. Right now, for all of us who have student debt, regardless of where it's coming from, compromise and settlement is that demand, which is to say, you know that with the flick of a pen, Without congressional appro- approval, Joe Biden can cancel all 1.7 trillion. He could have done it yesterday. He could have de- he could do it tomorrow, right? It's not. It doesn't exactly have the, um, the. It's not. It's not a kind of online app that gets to send 90,000 legal legal demands to the Department of Education. But it is to say that we know that there's a mechanism and to make the demand to use the mechanism. But in any kind of debt strike, whether it's medical debt, whether it's human caging debt, whether it's um, housing debt. We have to think about where those inflection points are when folks who still are paying can stop paying and are willing to take the consequences. And that's like once you're a really big strike. Right. I mean, that's it takes a lot of organizing.
1: Well, I have a feeling there are many people who are watching this conversation uh, who currently can't pay a whole wide range of things. And uh, hopefully after this conversation and hopefully after buying and reading the book. Can't pay, won't pay. Uh, more of them will move into the won't pay uh, stage, which is uh, going to be essential. I mean, we're not—you know—we're not just talking here about will Joe Biden make these kinds of decisions because. We write enough mean tweets about how much of a neoliberal he is. I mean, we need this kind of collective action of people moving to the won't pay stage that the Debt Collective uh, has been organizing that we're seeing on college campuses like uh, Columbia's and the University of Chicago and elsewhere. So uh, this is this is this is how we get to the point where uh, we uh, we, from can't pay to won't pay to no longer have to pay, which is where we'd like to go and even to make one more point.
2: Yeah, I did just wanna say, I just agree with that so profoundly. This is not about tweeting at Joe Biden, and it's also not frankly about Joe Biden. It is about building power. When I said that the Debt Collective won that $1.5 billion in debt abolition, who do you think we won it under? Part of it came at the twilight of the Obama regime. We want it under the Trump regime. We want it from Betsy DeVos because once you build power, you don't have to say, oh, please, President Biden, you know, think of your like liberal. You don't have to. (laughs) They have to fucking do it. Betsy DeVos, who was Trump's Department of Education secretary, she wrote every discharge note when she signed it. She signed with extreme displeasure. Damn right, (laughs) Betsy. Because we made you do that. It doesn't matter who is in power. I mean, of course, it matters who is in power. But when you build power, you have power over the people in power, right? So we did it under Trump. We can do it under Biden. But it is about building power.
1: Well, let's do it. Uh, thanks to both Hannah Apple and to David Adler. Thank you also to Haymarket Books for publishing uh, this great book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, and uh, for hosting the stream. And thanks for everyone for tuning in. Good night.